Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So we are continuing a series this morning uh, as we've begun going through the Gospel of Mark, beginning in chapter 1, verse 14. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, it's a longer passage. This is going to happen to us a few times, probably more than a few times as we go throughout this, this Gospel. Uh, but this morning we're going to piece together this large section from Matthew chapter, just chapter 1, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. I've condensed it just for the sake of the reading. So it's printed for you in the worship folder and it'll be on the screen behind me if you're at home be on your screen as well. Let's, let's look at it together, reading together. Now John, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother, brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let me ask you a question. What is the best news you heard this week? What's the best news that you heard this week? I think I can top it. That's what I'm trying to do anyway. Because the good news of this passage, the good news of this whole gospel, is that there's a king and there's a kingdom. King and kingdom. Do you see that title, the title of the sermon, King and Kingdom? Both, king and kingdom, side by side. We need both of those things. They're both crucial parts of the good news of Jesus. Modern secularism wants the kingdom. They want the kingdom without the king. Progressivism, you could could nail it down this way. Progressivism seeks the world the gospel makes, but without the gospel itself. Does that make sense? A kingdom of justice and peace and equity and all these things that the gospel, the vision of the gospel is what made those things possible, but all without Jesus at the center. But here's the thing. Modern evangelicalism has its own imbalance. It can, at times, be guilty of just the opposite, of embracing the king, but not his kingdom. Of saying, let's just preach the gospel, right? Let's not get involved with social justice or racial reconciliation. That's, That's missional theology. That's wokeness. And I hope we don't use that language to just excuse and and make light of something that is crucial. This passage challenges both of these imbalances. It says there's a king and there's a kingdom. And both of them are important, unique, and urgent 
And so we learn two things from this text. We learn what the gospel is, and then we also learn what the gospel does. What the gospel is and what the gospel does, and then Jesus very clearly spells out what our response should be. It's to repent and believe, both in the urgency and the uniqueness of what the gospel is and what the gospel does. So let's walk through the text together uh, using that outline. First, we learn uh, very clearly here, we learn from this first chapter of Mark and from the whole gospel of Mark what the gospel is. And if I could just boil it down, as, make it as simply as I, simple and as summarized as I can, the gospel is the king. But the first, let's say this, Christianity is gospel, it's not religion, it's news. It's not instruction, it's not advice, it is, it's about God and who God is and what God does. It's not about you. And this would have been crystal clear in the ancient world. Mark is borrowing a term here from Roman culture, euangelion. It's an announcement, a headline. It's, you know, it's a news report about the birth of a king or an emperor who would bring peace and prosperity to the nation or news from a messenger from the battlefield of a military victory that was crucial for the well-being of the people. And that is the way the word was used all throughout that world in that time. A headline, not a recruiting pitch, a headline. And so we learned that the Bible is not a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And the Bible is not a book of heroes. This is Sally Lloyd-Jones, if I'm channeling her here. It's not a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible is a story about God's victory over our enemies, God's rescue of those he loves. The Bible is history. It tells of events that actually happened because it is news, it is gospel. And I labor this point because a lot of Christianity is really just religion and a lot of Christians are merely religious and it's a real danger. So when we say Christianity is gospel, what do we mean? What is the gospel? And here we find in verse 14 a great summary. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Do you see that phrase, verse 14? The gospel of God. What is the gospel? God is the gospel. Isaiah 40, we read at the beginning of the service, go up on a high mountain, the prophet says, Herald the good news. Herald the gospel. And what is it that they're to say? What are the people to go up on top of the mountain and say with a loud voice? They're there to say, behold, your God. Behold, God. What is the gospel message? God. John Piper's actually written about this. And he said, you know, being a for, a forgiven of your sins is the best. Isn't it the best? I mean, you get, you feel relief from all the feelings of guilt and condemnation. But that's not even the real joy. The real joy in being forgiven is when you're forgiven of your sins, you get God back. You get better communion with God. You get face-to-face -face with God again. And eternal life, eternal life is amazing. I mean, it's unbelievable that, that God offers that to us. But why? Why is it? Why is it? What's so great about the idea of eternal life? Well, well, hell, hell sounds terrible, and I don't want to go there. It's true, yeah. Or I'll get to see the people that I love that are gone, and I'll be with them again. Or you know, or whatever it might be, but, but according to the Bible, the real joy, the real hope, the real, the real news of eternal life is God himself. Eternal life is knowing God. The gospel is God because the ache of the human soul is for God. All of the sadness and loneliness and fear that we feel is because sin has alienated us from God. And so the good news of the gospel is that God has come not to make our lives better and to make all the hard stuff go away. He has come to be with us. Which is the better news. The greatest gift that God can give is the gift of himself. 
because nothing else can heal our hearts. So Christianity is about God. Our sin has alienated us from God, from our maker. That's the root of all of the problems. That's why you feel so guilty. It's why you're unfulfilled and discontent. It's why you're so anxious and without joy and peace. Because the glory center of your life meant to be filled by your maker is empty. And that emptiness creates conceit and selfish ambition or an inferiority complex that just drives you crazy. Because sin is an absence of God. Hell is the cosmic absence of God. And so the good news of Christianity is that the broken relationship between God and man is being repaired. Not when we finally get our act together, <laughs> but by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, who was God himself, here we read, bursting into the world, God with us. And the aim of Jesus's ministry was to bring God and man together again. And he did that by dying on the cross for our sins, thus removing the moral hindrance in our relationship to God. And that just sentence of our sins being death he died in our place, satisfying God's justice. Not only that, he lived a life of perfect obedience so that he could give to us a righteousness, a right standing with our maker that allows us the same intimacy and access to the father that he himself had. He was raised to make all that official. He said to his disciples, we just read this past week, I love, I love this little line. He said to his disciples in John 20, after the resurrection, he said, I'm going to ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God, which means if you believe in Jesus and if your heart is resting its hope on him, then your relationship with God is the same in quality, the same in every way as his relationship. And from that flows all the rest. But you see, but if you, what you really want is just a change of circumstances. If you just want like a different life, a different house or a different spouse or a different whatever or if what you really want is just to feel less guilty about bad things you've done or if you just want joy and hope and peace you want to feel better inside about your life or about yourself I've got bad news you won't find what you're looking for because those things can only be had by having God God's gifts are not as good as God himself let me say it again God's gifts are not as good as God himself a comfortable life is not as good as a hard life with more of him. The best gift that God can give is the gift of himself. Tony and Ellswick and I were talking about this passage this week. Pray for him. He's preaching in Sebring at a sister church down there all, all, um, all month. And I thought he, he, hit, he hit on the nail on the head, really, in thinking about this passage. He said, you know, the problem with these people here is Jesus kind of goes around the Galilee up near Capernaum, he says, the problem with these people is that they wanted Jesus' power, but not his authority. They wanted to benefit from what Jesus was doing without having to wrestle with the implications of who he was. Now, this is, as I said, this is typical of modern progressivism that wants the kingdom, but not the king. They want a world, the world that God promises to make, but without God himself. The secular world refuses to deal with the implications of the claim that Jesus was, in fact, God in flesh, but they still want all the other stuff that comes with it. They want Jesus' power, but not his authority. But the text won't let us get away with this. We're told, verse 22, that Jesus taught in the synagogue, and it says they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. There was something new, in other words, about the things that he's saying, something they had never heard before. It transcended the political and ideological categories they were familiar with. But somehow, even though it was so unfamiliar and so new to them, they knew when he spoke that it was true. 
The world today, the world today says feelings are the ultimate source of meaning. And so Jesus is only as helpful, he's helpful as far as he's able to get you the life that you want. If he can help you feel good about yourself and your life, you know, then that's great. We live in this culture of authenticity. Mark, by introducing us to Jesus, is saying there is a truth that transcends your feelings. There is an authority. There is a king. There is no kingdom without the king. You cannot have Jesus' power without submitting to his authority. The way to happiness and peace is not self-actualization, it's self-denial. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is reality, and reality does not conform to our desires, feelings, or ideas. Our desires, feelings, and ideas have to conform to the truth. We do not subdue reality to suit our wishes. We submit to it. There is a king. Jesus is God himself. He's not just a teacher or a moral philosopher. This is what this text is claiming. He is the center of all reality. And if you want all the good stuff that he gives, you have to take him on his own terms. There's a king. But there's a second thing that we learn from the, ta- from the text, from this chapter, and from all of the Gospel of Mark. And not only is what the Gospel is, the Gospel is God. The Gospel is that our relationship with God can be repaired through Jesus Christ. But we also are shown here what the Gospel does. Look at verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. So the good news is also the kingdom. It's the king and the kingdom. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. But it's important here to distinguish between what we mean by the gospel and then the results of the gospel. The content of the gospel and the consequences of the gospel. It's very important. And this is where we get tripped up. Because the gospel is the good news that rightness with God is a gift. It is not based on your own moral effort, your own record. It is sheer grace. But the results of the gospel is healing and renewal. And that healing and renewal we see here and we know from experience begins with individual persons and then spreads through the whole world. The gospel is how to be right with God in Jesus Christ. The results of the gospel is what happens in and through the people who have been made right with God as they join Jesus in the remaking of the whole world. Doing justice and mercy and seeking the shalom of the city. But just look what Jesus who was right with God was doing. That's, that's, the text is really highlighting all of his action. The action's the point, remember. Let's look and see what he's doing here. But as we do, remember what he said. I'm going to keep repeating this over and over to us, I think. Here's what Jesus said in John 14. Everyone who believes in me will do the same works that I do and even greater works. Because I'm going to die and be raised and ascend to the Father in heaven and I'm going to baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I've had to condense the material, but here's the rundown. This is going to be, this is like lightning round, okay? Did you notice as we read how many times, remember I told you the word immediately keeps coming up? Did you see it? Did you hear it as we read? So verses 14 and 20, Jesus announces the gospel, then immediately beginning in verse 16 begins to to gather followers. And then in verse 21, he immediately goes to the synagogue and begins to preach a sermon. And there's a demon-possessed man there. I had to cut this part out. And he immediately, in the middle of that sermon, delivers that man from his spiritual oppression. And then after church, he immediately went to Simon, Peter, Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house, and she was sick. So immediately, it says, he healed her too. And then after dinner, word had gotten out, and the whole city showed up in the front yard. And he went out and ministered to them and healed them through the late night hours. 
And that's just one day. Day two. On day two, it says, he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching and teaching, casting out demons. And then the chapter ends with Jesus cleansing a leper of his disease at the very end of the chapter. And it would really... It would really help for you to have a Bible open so you could take in the whole thing because it's meant to be overwhelming. It would take your breath away. It really would take your breath away. But let me just make a couple of observations about the things we read here. And the first is, notice Jesus' method because it is important. We read verse 39. Look there again at verse 39. It says, he went throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And you see there just the balance between word and deed, preaching and teaching and healing and working for justice and peace. Jesus proclaimed the gospel. He also demonstrated the gospel's power to remake the world through miracles by healing people of their diseases and casting out demons and releasing people from their spiritual oppression and all these things. He, he, he lived a miraculous life because those miracles were not suspensions of the natural order. They were the restoration of the natural order. Jurgen Moulton Sorry, Jürgen Moltmann said this, the only natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded were the works that Jesus was doing. So you see, word and deed, preaching and teaching and healing and, and working to help people in practical ways. Then you see the scope. You see Jesus confronting evil spirits and casting them out of people. He's like on this, this, this direct assault on hell. He healed people of their diseases. He met people at these really big points in their life, but then also, don't you love it? He goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house, and she's sick. She's got a fever. She's running a 99.5 fever or something, and he takes the time to cure her of her fever. Isn't that great? Have you ever prayed when you have a fever? Have you ever prayed that Jesus would heal you of a fever? It's my favorite part. The kingdom is the electricity of God. The healing power of God's love let loose on the world, and it touches every part. That's what we learn, spiritual and physical, big and small, soul and body. There's nothing that has not been affected by the fall, and so there's nothing that cannot be touched and healed by spiritual power, by the spiritual power in Jesus that has been unleashed in his life, death, and resurrection. Isaac Watts has it right. He got it right. He said he comes to make his blessings flow. Do you remember the line? What is it? Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. In other words, there's not a single little corner of the world that has not been affected by sin. So guess what? There's not a single little corner of the world that Jesus is not going to make new. What this means for us is it means we can't be people that keep our faith in one little tiny quarter of our lives either. There is an integration. It has to be all together. Faith and family, faith and work, faith and in, in business, faith and politics. All these things have to integrate with one another. It's also why we preach the gospel and work for mercy and justice in the world. Why we evangelize. Our mission is to evangelize and also to volunteer at Life Choice or with Heart for Winter Haven. We center on the gospel and then we plunge ourselves into the work of making Jesus' invisible kingdom visible in our little corner of the garden that God is remaking the world into. Do you see the good news here? King, kingdom. Never one without the other. You can't have the king and not embrace his kingdom. You can't have the kingdom without taking the king on his own terms. So there's a king and there's a kingdom. The gospel is something unique and urgent, and it does something unique and urgent. And so as we finish, what is our response? Well, verse 15 again, Jesus is very clear to tell us. He says, look there, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so the question for us this morning is then how do we 
respond in repentance and faith to what the gospel is. That's the first thing. How do we respond in repentance and faith to what the gospel is? To the king. Well, let me mention just a few things. For one, I think one thing we have to do is to refuse to soften the blow. Here's what I mean by that. The people heard Jesus teach and they said, look, verse 26, they said, what is this? Have you ever had that experience? I hope it's a regular experience. You're reading the Bible, you come across something, you're like, what is this? A new teaching with authority. See, you have to make sense of Jesus' authority. You have to make up your mind about him. Is he who he claims to be? If not, can I be your friend? If not, then just ignore him. He's obviously crazy. But if he is, in fact, who he claims to be, if he is, in fact, very God of very God, if he is the king of the whole universe, if he is the creator God, God himself, the way, the truth, and the life, then the only rational thing to do is to obey him in everything. It's the only thing that makes sense. What he says matters, not how you feel. You have to go... You have, to, you have to make the choice to go with his words, not your feelings. And, and, and refuse to soften the blow. And, and allow yourself to wrestle with the implications of what he says. But there's a couple of other things. Well, if, if, if the gospel is grace, if the, if the core message of Christianity is not moral striving and effort, but grace, then what does it mean to repent and believe the core message of grace? Well, if the gospel is grace, then we repent not only by turning from our sins... And giving our whole selves to God, but we also turn from all of the ways that we're trying to be good and right in our own strength. Part of the repentance we do is, is repentance in that direction. You see, a religious person, and here's, I said a lot of people who think they're Christians are really religious. And here's how you know the difference. A religious person repents of their bad. The difference is a Christian repents of their bad and their good. Because they know their good isn't good enough. There's an old hymn that describes doing as a deadly thing. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. It's a deadly thing when you're doing it to earn a righteousness with God for yourself. And you've got to do that. You've got to lay it down. You've got to stop. You've got to get to the place in your life where you have enough clarity where you realize, I've got to, I've got to stop trying to earn God's love and acceptance with my doing. And here's one of the things we learned, that it is possible to be a Christian and to still be harboring a secret hope of recommending yourself to God by all of your morality and effort you, you and you know it's there you know that little secret hidden part of your life is there that you're still you know you're still got that religious operating system at the center of your life you know you know it's there if you begin to feel proud and start thinking and speaking condescendingly of people who aren't as good as you or if you if you blow it and you feel ashamed and you're devastated when you make a mistake if either of those things are true, then one of the things you got to ask is, you might be good, religious, moral, but are you believing the gospel? You're not believing the gospel. Jesus says, repent and believe. Stop trying to do it yourself and believe that what I have come to do is enough. And then from there, from that point, you launch into the rest of life. And I would say part of repenting and believing the unique and urgent thing the gospel is, is stop controlling and striving and grasping and learn to receive and rest 
The kingdom is a gift, right? It's a headline. It's not a recruiting pitch. It's a headline. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, Fear not, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God, God's delight. God delights to fill your life with all of the beauty and joy and love that overflows from the center of his own person. Wrestle with that. It is God's delight. It is the thing that makes him more happy than anything else in all of the world to fill your life with all of the beauty and joy and love that overflows from the center of his person. Psalm 31 says this. I, this I just, we read it a couple weeks ago and it's just, I've just not been able to get it out of my head. The psalmist says, how great is your goodness which you have stored up. Isn't that all? How great is your goodness which you have stored up. God has storehouses of goodness. Isn't that awesome? Like he has storehouses. He has a whole warehouse out on Highway 27 somewhere full of nothing but goodness. Just like sitting there waiting. And it says you store it up and then you work it for those who take refuge in you. That, that is an awesome verse. How great is your goodness which you've stored up and you work for those who take refuge in you. Do you believe that to be the truth? Then stop controlling and striving and grasping and learn to receive and rest. Take a breath. It's going to be okay. I see all the husbands kind of like snuggling their wives right now. I don't know what that means. Ladies, take a break. It's going to be all right. Men, stop acting like the whole world is on your shoulders. It's not. Let's be honest, you can't even take care of yourself. Stop trying to take care of everybody else. The gospel is something unique and urgent. But the gospel also does something unique and urgent. So how do we respond in repentance and faith to what the gospel does to the kingdom? And here, I think the text gives a crystal clear picture of what this looks like. Because in verse 15, Jesus says, repent. And then if you, if you have it in front of you, then look in verse 16. In verse 16, we go into a scene with Simon and Andrew and then later with James and John. And it is an illustration for us right there in the text of what repentance and faith look like. Because notice the word immediately, verse 18. They, uh, Mark uses that word immediately to describe all that Jesus does. He uses it here to describe their response to Jesus' call to follow. Jesus comes to Simon and Andrew and he says, follow me. And it says immediately, immediately, decisively, no hesitation, no planning. No looking back. Verse 18, Simon and Andrew, they immediately left their nets to follow him. They left their livelihood. They left their security and comfort without even thinking. They left their financial stability. They left their career success. They gave all of that up to give their lives to the kingdom. It isn't that exactly what Jesus is calling us to do as well. Luke chapter 12. He says... Life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. Don't waste your life working and worrying and storing up. He's got it all stored up, remember? He's already got it. He's already got all the stuff out on, and, you know. Don't waste your life working and worrying and storing up so that sometime near the end of your breath of a life, you can take it easy and finally enjoy the lifestyle you've always wanted. He says, don't be anxious about your life. Don't spend all your money and energy trying to provide for yourself. Seek the kingdom first and all the rest will be taken care of. That's Luke chapter 12. Matthew 6. Seek the kingdom first. Leave your nets. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. I know that's radical. I know it's un-American. I didn't say it. 
Talk to him, not me, right? I mean, seriously. Seek the kingdom. Simon and Andrew left their nets to follow James and John. I'm sorry, to follow Jesus. James and John left their father. You see that? Verse 20. Simon and Andrew left their nets. James and John left their father. They broke away from family obligations. They broke ties with cultural and national loyalties. They left behind old allegiances for a greater allegiance to the king and his kingdom. Again, friends, Jesus demands the same of us. Here's what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That is Luke chapter, chapter 14, verses 26 through 33, if you don't believe me. Again, I didn't say it. He did. And here's the thing. My friends in India understand that. In India, they understand that when you become a Christian, you lose your family. Your father and your brothers, <laughs> there's, no more, like, there's no more family gatherings. Your father and your brothers, they take machetes and they try to track you down and kill you. You have to be willing to lose everything. You have to be willing to leave it all behind. Now we, fortunately, aren't forced to make a similar decision. But, but of course, there's a reason why the church is exploding in the global south and it's in sharp decline in the west. Where you can believe without risking or losing anything. Miroslav Volf. Croatian theologian, he said this, departure is part and parcel of Christian identity. You have to leave. Like Abraham, like these disciples, if you're going to follow Jesus too, your life should be disrupted enough to where you can identify an ending of one thing and the beginning of another. It happened to me in November of 1993 in my dorm room at Florida State University of all places. God speaks to people at Florida State. Can you believe that? I, I suppose he does in Gainesville as well. I don't even remember the details. Except that it was this moment, just kind of out of the blue, where I, I came to this realization, okay, okay. If I'm going to do this, if I'm going to be a Christian, it's going to take over my whole life. For me, right, welcome, welcome to this morning. For me, that eventually meant vocational ministry. It might not mean that for you. It might. You know, why don't we, why don't we talk to our kids about, what, I came to this, we don't talk to young people anymore about the idea that God might be calling them to ministry. In the church I grew up in, we talked about it all the time. Some, we, 85 kids last Sunday, guys. Let's hope that at least like 10 of those are going to be missionaries, church planters, or pastors. Right? It, it might not be that for you, but don't assume it's not. Ordination is not a sacrament in Protestantism because the call is the same for all of us. Whether you work it out in your professional life as an attorney or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom or whether you start a nonprofit or whether you become a pastor or a church planter or a missionary. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He said, Christianity is the story of how the rifle king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And so we pray with the hymnist who said this, your kingdom come, O Father, hear our prayer. Shine through the clouds that threaten everywhere. 
light from above, our only life and joy. Show us the hope that nothing can destroy. Amen. Pray with me, if you would. Father, your word, uh, your word proclaims about itself that it is living and active, as sharp, sharp as a two-edged sword that can pierce and divide and, and tear us to pieces. And whereas I, I really do want the tenor of most of what we do to be comfort, I do think there's a place to where, where it is okay uh, to acknowledge that sometimes your words, they pierce and they wound, and they mean to come in and do surgery on us. And so I pray that you would do just that. And I don't know, I don't know, possibly possibly can't begin to imagine what it is that you might do among us as a people if we would take seriously the unique and urgent thing that the gospel is and the unique and urgent thing that it does in the world and to begin to lay down our lives like these people here. This is not something unique to James and John and, and Peter and, and all of those guys, but there is a call on every one of our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ bids a man, he calls him, come and die. You have said, Lord Jesus, that we should take up our cross and follow you. And so would you give us the courage to at least ask the question this morning of what that might be? And for some of us, it might be to find a pastor or a leader before we leave and say, you know what? I don't know if I've ever truly put my faith in Jesus and repented of my sins and asked him to forgive me and change me. And I want to do that. And for some of us, it might be you know, there's just not, there's, there's a lack of integrity between what I say I believe and the way I'm living my life in this particular area. Would you lead us into deeper and deeper places of repentance and faith this morning? Those are both gifts of your grace to us. And so Holy Spirit, come have your way in this moment as we listen for your voice. Speak. And then move us to the obedience that you desire from us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure you see them before you leave this morning. Okay, you're not off the hook. So stand, because God sends you as well. That's what this benediction is. It's just as we laid hands on them and sent them. So God, I lift my hands over you, symbolizing God's promise to go with you as he sends you now. And so receive this benediction and go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.